Hello, this is Rebecca Fleetwood-Hessian, host of the Badass Women's Council podcast, and I'm super glad that you are here. So today's guest, we have Emily Shaw. Hello, Emily. Hi. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you for asking. This is one of those interviews that will be super fun, but also more difficult for me because we talk every flipping (laughs) day, usually multiple times per day. So I'm going to try to not put shortcut language that you and I have developed over time into this podcast. I just felt it important to give some context for the way that we banter. Yeah. I'm glad that you didn't say I talk to you every day. So I can't imagine anything of interest that I could speak to you about on this podcast. <laughs> so I thought for a second, maybe that's where it was going. Like we've so run out of topics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, we're done. We, 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 if that would be possible. Yeah. Possible. I'm pretty sure that's not possible at all. So no. I asked you to come on and talk to me like officially today, not just like, Hey, let's chat all day long because you are one of the masters in our Badass Master Class monthly subscription, which is a part of the online community. And it's been going on since February, I think. And it's so freaking cool. Before we talk about what we came here to talk about, what's your general sense of the Master Class and what people are getting out of it? I'm curious. I didn't set you up to say I was going to ask this question. Curious. Yeah. I'm glad that you asked. Um, a couple of things come to mind selfishly. I'm excited that I get to be in there with the other masters and learn from them. (laughs) That's my favorite part. Um, close second to that favorite is, and I'm sure I've mentioned this to you before, but something that I'm really passionate about when it comes to women in business is lifting each other while we climb that mountain of success. I think for decades prior to the one that we have the privilege of living in, Um, There was a bit of a sense of scarcity mindset when it came to the number of women who could be successful in a business atmosphere and that there was room for just a couple of us. And so we weren't necessarily as supportive of one another as we could be and are really great at doing. Um, So it's it's a unique energy in that space where we've all come to not only learn from one another, but also support one another on that journey to success. And that's something that I'm passionate about. And I feel privileged to be able to partake in. Mm, I love that. Yeah. We often joke, I refuse to do women's programming for the first 25 years of my career because I had such a horrific experience early on where I was invited into a quote unquote women's group. And it was the mean girls group and they were mean to each other and they hated all the men and I was afraid of them and didn't like them. And I I actually excused myself like I was going to the bathroom and never went back to one of the meetings. I was like, um, excuse me, Mm -hmm. scary place. And this, it's not that in the masterclass or in the online community in general. So yay. Love that you said that. Not at all. It very much is a supportive lift lift you up kind of group. And I invited you Mm -hmm. into the masterclass because you're, badass, talented, and, and amazing. You're a sales coach for Lucian mm-hmm. and not everybody in the master class is in sales. A couple of them are, but it's, it's come one, come all any career women, but we, you talk about the psychology of sales because we're all selling something, whether it's an idea or, um, whatever. And 
what's been really fascinating is how applicable it is to parenting, marriage, every aspect of our life. We we come into these conversations and yeah. we think, you know, we're hardcore business hitting stuff. And then somebody immediately will say, well, you know, last night with my kids or my husband did this or whatever. Do you experience that in your day-to-day sales coaching role always? Constantly. Yes. Um, and there's a pretty easy explanation for that. Sales um, from a really high 100,000 foot viewpoint falls into two large buckets that get a lot more specific and detailed as, as you get closer. Um, but that's managing conflict and understanding human behavior. That's really it. <laughs> uh, I make it sound really easy. It's a lot more complicated than that. But we're all doing that on a constant basis with every other human being around us, regardless of our role or our relationship to them. So that's why it's so easily applicable to any scenario where you are having an interaction with another human uh, because they're universal principles. Oh my gosh. I don't think we've ever talked about it in that way. I love the simplicity (laughs) of that. Like you said, not easy, but concept-wise simple. So managing conflict and human behavior, which is every single day of all of our lives, no matter what we do or don't do, right? Yep. Yep. And one of the topics that we covered in the last session around making decisions, the behavior Mm -hmm. decision-making, I think is really critical because coming out of 2020, one of the overarching consequences of 2020 that I've seen is people are more indecisive. Yeah. And, and we, and we didn't set this up as part of the conversation. It just came to me as you were talking. Do you feel that way too? Or is that just me? Um, I think it's on either end of the spectrum. I think people are either I'm making all these decisions because last year I was robbed and it's never going to happen to me again. And I don't know what's going to happen next. Right. So they go the full throttle. And then the rest of us are in this place where it's like, well, I don't know what I should do because everything's sort of up in the air. um, And, and a lot of unanticipated things happened last year. And I feel like I just need to chill and have some stability and some predictability. And so I don't want to change things. So I think I, I would say, I would agree. I would say that there's, opposite ends of the spectrum. And not many people are really in the middle. It seems to be uh, either end. No, that makes complete sense. And so you walked us through, and that's what we're going to do on today's episode too, Mm -hmm. some of the steps in order to bring people together to help facilitate decision-making. And you shared some research and some things that just were staggering. And I told you the other day in a text, I've used it no less than five times in the first three days after we covered. And I was like, okay, we we have to tell this to the entire world. So (laughs) yeah, I agree. Um, so the first just launch into it. So the, so the, like you did with the masterclass, um, last week, um, starting with the number of decisions we make a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I asked the group on average, how many decisions they think the human being makes in one day, regardless of your marital status or your role in your company. Um, this is just the average across the board. Answers ranged from 150 to 500. 
<laughs> which now that you know the answer is crazy and saying laughable, um, but it's, the answer is actually 35,000. And that's a lot. 35,000 <laughs> um, decisions, the average person yeah. a day. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's why we're all so tired at the end of the day. Mind boggling. Exactly. And one yeah. could easily say if that's the average person that a career woman, especially those with children and or aging parents or other humans that they're taking care of, it's probably higher. Probably. Um, I feel like in the course of one hour from five to six, I make half of those decisions regarding how much screen time people are still allowed to have, what we're having for dinner, right. <laughs> right. and all of the micro decisions in between. And if you're wrestling listening to this with with believing that it's 35,000, if you really break it down and start to evaluate the micro decisions you make on a, on a daily basis that you're not even cognizant of, I think the picture becomes a little clearer, really just starting your day, your alarm goes off. You decide whether or not to hit snooze or to turn it off. Um, and then dependent upon which of those choose your own adventure paths you take, you have some different uh, decisions. And then it's, do I roll out? Do I jump out? Do I brush my teeth first? Do I have coffee first? There's so many. And then there's micro decisions in between there. How much toothpaste do I use? How, how much creamer do I put in my coffee? It's just endless. Um, and a lot of those are happening on a subconscious level. And I think I also shared with the group last time or, or another time, 95% of your day is driven by your subconscious, which means a lot of those decisions that you're making are also driven by your subconscious. And as human beings, we tend to think, well, people make decisions logically and rationally because we're smart humans. That's not, not true. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that they do prior to having the logic and rationale is experience and emotion. So as we talk about helping people facilitate making decisions, I talk about focusing more on the why behind the what. Now we've heard this a lot. We've heard it from um, ask why. Uh, we've, we, I mean, we've heard it from books and podcasts and research and you have to understand what my, my boyfriend, Simon Sinek. We're not really going to be boyfriend and girlfriend. I love anymore. him. So I will fight you for him. I, <laughs> I used to think favorite. that. Oh no. I, I don't know. I feel good about it. Therefore, I just feel like I've talked about him as my boyfriend so much that I'm not manifest manifested it yet. I probably should move on and find somebody else to obsess about. So there we go. Keep Maybe going. using me to release him. I'll release him to okay, you. There That's the thing. There we go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you're yeah. right. Starting with why has become a business term, which it wasn't 10, right. 20 years ago. Yeah. Right. And so cognizantly, we know that turning off the switch that we have on how we rationalize decision-making later is a little more challenging. I think I shared with the group this example that if you asked my husband, why did you marry your wife? You would have some sort of logical, rational explanation to that. We've been together for five years. We lived together. Our kids called each other sisters. She's smart or whatever. If I asked my husband behind closed doors and nobody could hear us and now it's on a podcast, so whatever. <laughs> and I asked him, why did you marry me? It would be, 
I couldn't live without you. You're the love of my life. It would be much more emotional. And so in, in certain capacities, specifically business, we share only the logical and rational reasoning as to why we do things. So a lot of people start with, well, here are the numbers and all of the rationalization as to why you should make this decision. And here's why I did this. And here's why I did this. And this makes sense. And then, it, and then things don't change and there's no forward step. And people are frustrated because they're like, this is stupid. It obviously makes sense to do this. It might, but there may be something emotionally driving this person that's not in line with the numbers that's causing them to slow roll that process, avoid it altogether. We don't know because we're not digging into the emotion behind what would compel someone to make a decision. That applies whether you're dealing with someone who's in a positive manner or a negative one, right? Doesn't it's, matter. It's all always human. emotionally driven. So I I tie that into the framework I use with coaching and consulting, which is business is human. A business on one column, if you look at it just as two columns beside each other, a business is here to control, measure, and optimize. That's what a business is supposed to do. It's supposed to grow. Mm-hmm. Humans are personal, emotional, and social. And over time, we have become prone to treat ourselves like a business. You think about, you and I have said this to each other. I went for a walk and forgot to wear my Apple watch. So it doesn't even count or, you know, we get, we got to count stuff, right? I ate something today and didn't log it in my new map. Therefore I've the, the, the day is shot, right? So we've Mm -hmm. tried to control measure and optimize our own human experience, which negates everything about our decision-making and everything about the fact that a business only exists to serve humans in some capacity. And so the sooner we line up with the human needs and the human decision-making and the neuroscience and the subconscious and the way that we're wired as humans, the better our business is going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And the better your conversations are going to be, if you're not looking at this through a business lens and you're looking at it through a personal lens or whatever, I mean, any interaction with another human being will will have more room for authenticity uh, and connection if you're targeting the emotion or the why or the motivation or, or the compelling reason for someone as opposed to trying to explain to them what they should do based on the outcomes and objectives that they could achieve. Yeah, right. Um, you know, this is akin to, we do this, the thing that drives me crazy is we do this in a personal setting all the time. I don't show up to, let's say a friend calls me and says, oh my gosh, I'm freaking out. You have to come meet me at this bar right now. (laughs) I'm already two in, come on. And I show up, right. And I walk in and they're like, I think I'm getting a divorce. I'm not going to say, okay, here are five lawyers. Also let's think about this strategy, right? Let's, let's, Tell me about your assets. I'm not trying to solve a problem. I'm going, oh my gosh, how do you know? How long has this been going on? How can I support you? Tell me more. What I'm connecting with them from an empathetic standpoint. But as soon as we walk into a boardroom or, you know, a a situation where we think we have to be professional, whatever that means, uh, all of that goes by the wayside. And that's why we have less effective conversations. My, my, the funniest one is, well, don't take it personally. When somebody Mm -hmm. says that in a business meeting, well, don't take it. 
okay, well, explain to me how that works. Like I am a personal human being. We're having a conversation or an interaction that involves me. So isn't that by nature personal? And then my second least favorite is, well, don't get so emotional. That's like, it's, it's like, it's like saying, don't bring your arms to the meeting. They're inconvenient. Like that they, <laughs> yeah. your emotions come with you. Like everything else comes with you. Um, yep. apologize to anybody out there with no arms because now you're offended and I'm sorry. Um, fair, fair. So the, the other stat that you shared that I have found profoundly helpful and intentional being more intentional about it. I do naturally because I'm a coach and it's what I'm supposed to do, but I've been far more intentional about doing it in all other aspects of my life. And that's about what we remember based on whether we tell somebody something or whether we ask questions. Let's talk about engaging with someone. Yeah. So First step to overcoming a decision crisis problem and helping people facilitate is not focusing on the logic and the justification, but it's focusing on their emotion and their compelling reason. Second thing is stop telling people and start asking people. Um, this a lot of different reasons. So the stat that you're referencing is just naturally most of us remember 80% of what we said in a conversation and about 25% of what somebody else said accurately. <laughs> I'd be able to give you the overview, but to remember specifics. And if anyone is again, wrestling with this stat, you can just think back to the last argument you had with your spouse, uh, because we've all been like, that's not what I said. That's not what I said. <laughs> like, right. I remember this. You're like, I didn't never said that. Right. Uh, and you were saying the same thing. And they're like, that's not at all what I said. Right. Um, so, but you can very accurately remember specifically and exactly the point that you were trying to make. Um, it's not just in, in spousal arguments. It's all the time. Um, and there's also this thing called transactional analysis that goes hand in hand with this. And we didn't talk too much about it, but it's the it ego super ego. Basically all of those ego states are always present for the conversations that you're having with another person. So we take them in and label them parent, adult, child, a lot easier to separate them when you're thinking about them through that capacity. And so you've got two kinds of parents. Traditionally, typically you've got nurturing parents and you have critical parents. Um, critical parents say things like you should do this. Why didn't you X, Y, Z? Uh, when will you learn? <laughs> they also, but they're necessary because they also say, don't touch that. It's hot. Uh, they create rules for us. Um, however, in a conversation uh, with an adult to an adult, um, anytime that we are trying to tell people what to do, we are coming from a critical parent ego state. And the thing that ignites in most people when dealing with a critical parent is rebellious child from their ego state. We don't really give them a lot of places to go. They have to defend their ego. It's part of them. It's subconscious. They're not thinking about it uh, um, purposefully or intentionally. And so the knee jerk reaction is to rebel. Now that may not look like F you don't tell me what to do. <laughs> that could just look like a silent rebellion on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that absolutely. I am definitely going to do this. And inside 
nope. they're not going <laughs> to do that. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, of helping people create clarity and confidence in order to make decisions is asking them questions so that they turn on light bulbs themselves, much like coaching. I even do this in my keynote speaking. So one of the things that I'm different than other keynote speakers is I build in conversation. So whatever time frame I'm given to give a talk, whether it's 20 minutes or two hours or days of a training class, I make sure that I'm not talking the entire time. And in fact, very little of the time. I want to introduce concepts in an entertaining, wonderful way, and then turn it over to the people that I'm speaking to and have them discuss it at the tables. And I've had people that hire me challenge me that on that. And, and I, when I explain this to them that, look, they're not, they're not going to, they're only going to remember 25% of what I say, but if mm -hmm. they talk about it at their tables, they're going to remember far more of it because their, their concern was, well, if you just turn them loose, they're not going to be paying attention to the topic. I'm like, actually, it's counterintuitive. They're going to be paying more attention to the topic because they get to talk about the topic. And I get yep. great feedback. And it's funny because I talk less and they get more out of it. Ding, ding, ding. Yep. Winner, winner. Absolutely. Absolutely. My talks and trainings are structured the exact same way. Um, table conversations, breakouts, worksheets with a partner, <laughs> all kinds of... Uh, work to be done on, on the other side. And you're right. It, that, that is the thing that creates the stickiness. Um, and they can actually apply it later. Otherwise it's really great and motivational and exciting and inspiring. And we've all been there, right? It's like, Oh my God, that was an amazing keynote. Two days later, I've forgotten that it existed. Or by the time you get home. <laughs> um, and it's or, not because it was or, bad. Yeah. And so if you're a parent, if you're, uh, thinking about how to use this with kids, asking more questions. And I think the par parental role is so dicey because you high stakes game, right? You want them to turn out okay. You want them to be safe. And so it feels a little counterintuitive, but asking, well, what do you think you should do instead of telling them what to do and some of those basic things. Um, and even as a, a team member, a leader, um, all for every role, this applies. Ask more questions oh, yeah. than you tell people what to do. Yeah, because it's making it about them. It's not going in with your ideation of, of what you think they should do or getting your own needs met through feeling really smart and validating. Um, it's really taking the focus off of you and helping them facilitate their own critical thinking um, that's, that's making it awesome. And I would say as far as parenting goes, I only ask questions. My kids are Honestly, like my nine-year-old at this point is like, I know what you're going to ask me. Yeah. <laughs> what, you gonna, what am I going to ask you? Yeah. Which is still a question. And then yeah. she falls right into the trap. <laughs> she likes to answer it. You're going to ask me this. And then I'm going to say this. And then you're going to be right. I'm like, well, I don't know how to be right. I didn't say anything. So there's that. But my number one thing that I would suggest all parents start doing, it's hilarious. It's like, if they do make a misstep, I always say, well, what do you think your punishment should be? And they come up with, like it's always worse far worse <laughs> far worse no like, I don't think 
yeah what if we didn't what if we cut that in half or what it looked like and or why do you think that's deserving of the crime um can you learn more about them right they feel really guilty and maybe they're not expressing that but they express it through what they think their punishment should be and then you can have a conversation about that and and you're getting to the heart of the matter and helping really put them back together um yeah i'm only questions in my household and i believe to facilitate that way helps whether it's kids or whether it's team members people to self-govern and not wait mm -hmm. to be told what to do i didn't want to raise kids that needed to be told what to do because i'm not going to be around mm -hmm. forever and once they left for college or whatever i didn't want to think about them going off the rails in rebellion so i wanted them to yeah. make decisions on their own and self-govern and, and the same applies for team members so yeah. The next thing that you covered in this process was, is? Yeah, so, and there are many, many other components to helping people make decisions. I don't, I don't want to convey that this is only these three things that you have to take into consideration. These are three big things that will help um, if it's something that, that someone is struggling to uh, make happen right now. But a huge reason that people don't make decisions um, when we expect them to is we never told them when we expect them to <laughs> you sit down, whether it's with your kids or your spouse or your team or uh, a, a sales prospect um, in my world. And you have this expectation that you're going to have this conversation and then something's going to come of it as an outcome on a decision. Yes, no, clear next steps. Keep it pretty simple. Um, what expectation is that person walking into the room with? Do they even know that this is a conversation where they're going to have to make a decision? Probably not. Um, or what's their agenda in coming into this conversation? Is it just to gather information and do whatever they want with it? There's just a misalignment of expectations in a lot of conversations that we need to have alignment on to move forward if there's some activity that needs to happen afterward. And then we get mad at people for doing something we didn't tell them they weren't allowed to do. <laughs> it's like everyone's dumb and no one can make decisions. Like, what did you tell them that you expected them to? No, why are you mad? <laughs> Shouldn't so, they just know? Yeah. No. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, we all we all tend to be a bit myopic and think that everyone thinks the same way that we do. And if we just took one extra step in getting alignment on that, our lives would be a lot easier. Uh, so whether that's front loading, which would be a term that you'd use in counseling or psychiatry is to, uh, here's what I need from you. Uh, when is a good time and, and space for us to work through that and communicate that? Do you think you'd be able to give me feedback on that or make a decision on that? Why or why not? Let's talk through that. And it's, it's basically, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, bring it to the present and have a conversation about it and then create a plan around that. Um, but yeah, if, if you're working with a team, um, like a leadership team and everyone needs to get together and make a decision, then it needs to be communicated. We're going to meet for an hour. Here are the things we're going to discuss. Please add in whatever would help you in making a decision. But at the end of that hour, we're going to have to decide something. Now, we, you can say no. You're allowed to say no. Right? You don't have to just do whatever I tell you to do. <laughs> Permission to express yourself. Um, and obviously, this is yes would look like, or we need to have clear next steps 
determined before we walk out of the room, I think all organizations would be transformed if uh, we did that for every conversation we have with one another. Not, not to make dealing with people efficient, but the process if we need to help people facilitate decision-making should be efficient because there's too many other things going on in a decision-making process for the entire process itself to be all messed up and, and convoluted and, and, I don't know, murky. And people making assumptions and guessing and instead of just yeah. knowing. So the two mm-hmm. terms I use for that are as long as everybody has clarity and context. Clarity. What is yep. it? What are we exactly. going to decide? When are we going to decide it? And context, which is the story around it which has the emotional component. Why does this matter? Who does it matter to? And if you just ask yourself those two questions, did I provide clarity and context? It fits almost every scenario. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to wrap up the podcast today, but I'm sure you and I will be texting within, you know, an hour or two or three. So I am so appreciative of having you as my friend and my coach, but if somebody wants to hire you to do great work with them, they can't text you all the time. Like I do, because you don't have time for that. You have me. Um, <laughs> and I'm always texting you saying, yes, you right now. Priorities. You priorities. So I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, work myself out of, of availability, but mm-hmm. if they want to hire you to do sales coaching, who's the, who's the right person? Who do you work with? Yeah. So I work with presidents, CEOs, owners. Um, typically they come to me frustrated because they've hired awesome people and individuals for their sales teams all the way from leadership to sales person, but they're not necessarily getting awesome or the very least consistent results. So sometimes, um, we're really great at account retention, but we struggle to close new business or to bring new business in. Sometimes it's, we bring lots of people into the pipeline. However, they seem to stall out and we don't know why they go us. We have no idea. We don't have processes um, that, that will support us in helping understand why that's happening. Or at the, at the very least, um, we're well aware that our salespeople are driving that bottom line and we need to get them as many resources and support as possible to help them help us. We're just not sure where to turn and, and what to do. So those are the three biggest reasons that, that people come to me. Love it. I mean, now I was a wildly successful salesperson, so $35 million, but I oh, yeah. still need your coaching to think through things and talk through things. And what did I forget? And yeah, so yeah. it's, it's not a, it, it's not just for those folks that also think, well, I don't know how, or I'm not doing it, um, right. It's, it's for everybody to just hold up the mirror. And so yeah. you can say, Hey, what about this? What about that? Yeah. I'm glad you said that because really the, the, people that come with the experience and are great at what they do, um, that just need to sharpen their sword or, or whatever they, they tend to have greatest and fastest success. And it's kind of like, um, you know, world famous athletes still have a coach. They still run plays. They're not just out there doing whatever they want to (laughs) do. Um, so they've, they've got structure and they've got support. This is no different. Yeah. And if you're not in sales and you are just interested in the behavior of, you know, human behavior and how we facilitate decision-making and, and our ideas and parenting, those are the things we do in masterclass. 
Um, yeah. So I would love any career woman that's thinking and be great a few times a month to jump on a virtual call with a bunch of amazing women and have rich conversations. That's what we do. So yeah. thank you for being Absolutely. here. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All I'll right. talk to you soon. Okay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I'm not coming down.